everybody, this is Kim Bean, and you are listening to All Things Wolf and Wild. You know, I struggle to find the right words to describe my guest today. Not because there are few words to describe him, but because there are so many. Carter Niemeyer is just a farm boy from Iowa who found his way out west as a trapper for the Montana Department of Livestock, and then he became a federal trapper for Wildlife Services. Carter has a Bachelor of Science degree and a Master's degree in Wildlife Biology from Iowa State University. Carter is also a key member of the wolf capture team in Canada that brought wolves back to Idaho and Yellowstone National Park for the wolf recovery back in the mid-90s. He then became the head of the wolf recovery program in Idaho, where he retired in 2006. Carter's life has been nothing short of fascinating and adventurous. And he's chronicled his life in his two books, Wolfer, a memoir, and Wolfland. He's also working on a third. I cannot express enough how important the book Wolfer has been to me. Um, It's definitely in my top five books to read, especially when it comes to wolf recovery, wolves, and truthfully, just the adventures of it. I am really excited to be able to say that this is our first of a few podcasts that we'll be doing together, and um, right now I just want everyone to get to know Carter Niemeyer. Carter, you grew up on a 20-acre farm in Iowa. This almost sounds like a John Denver song, doesn't it? Little, you know, farm boy from Kansas, but you're from Iowa. And uh, uh, right around, what was it, I think the age of nine, your dad taught you how to trap gophers out in the fields. And I think within that, and you can correct me at any point in time, you kind of learned a few things. You, you um, learned you could make a little bit of money off of that. Your dad kind of taught you that as well. And I think that for me, knowing this about you, I think it was a a changing point that would shape the rest of your life. So can you kind of just elaborate on that childhood? And I think your dad was a really big part of your, you know, who you are even today. Yes. Uh, Growing up in Iowa as a boy and uh, living on the edge of Garner, Iowa, we had 20 acres, which gave me a lot of room to roam and, uh, a lot of opportunities for adventure, so I was kind of out with the the bugs and the bees and the critters of various sorts from the time I can remember, and wandered around on those acres and sometimes gave my mom heart heartache and, and uh, heart attack almost, trying to wonder where I'm going and mm-hmm. where I've wandered off to, and so, yeah, I... Uh, nothing about anything else until my dad one time mentioned if uh wanted to learn to catch the little guys that make the mounds of dirt along the railroad tracks and on our property so uh he introduced me to a pocket gopher and we uh went out and i just watched him and watched him probe for their little runway and dig up their uh tunnel, which I had no idea was underground like that, and placed a little trap in that runway and put a old shingle over the top and covered it up with dirt. 
and uh, I was fascinated when we went back the next morning to see this odd-looking rodent, unlike the rats and the mice I'd seen, with his little digging paws and large teeth. His little eyes were just itty-bitty little pin dots on his head compared to the size of the animal. And So anyway... Uh, it's probably not the way the gopher wanted to be introduced to me, but uh, it was fascinating and a close-up experience where I uh, got really fascinated with pocket gophers. And then, of course, my dad told me for every gopher I got, it was worth a dime. And that would have been, you know, in the early 50s when a dime botches something. Yeah. A little different than today. Yeah, I mean, at that time, I think 19 cents would have bought you a gallon of gas. So, uh, yeah, and the box gopher stops goes on, taking the gopher front feet, since they were unique little digging tools and different from other feet on rodents. You took them up to the courthouse and we carried him up there in an old Folgers coffee can and put him on the counter, and the lady counted him out with a pencil and wrote a piece, wrote on a piece of paper and sent me down the hallway, and I got my first little paycheck. Wow. So I was kind of hooked on that because I bought a lot of bubble gum and baseball cards and all the other things that a kid liked to get. So, so that kind yeah, of... That, that, it, it kind of took you into a into a, a different a different place than just you know wandering the fields of Iowa. I mean, now you've you're getting up close and personal with these different types of animals and all that. And I know that um, you know from truly uh, you know the book Wolfer, a memoir, um, which by the way is I think you're publishing your third edition next month. Is that correct? That is correct. And yep. so check that out on uh, bottleflypress.com to get your copy because truly I've had this book in my hand since 2012, actually. No, 20, yeah, 2012. And um, I don't know how many times I've read it. So I, you know, it, it's just one of those incredible stories of your life. Um, and truly, I mean, it, it, it encapsulates who you are and how you've become the Carter of today. So it's really hard for me not to talk about the book um, because it, it is who you are, and I really want to kind of um, separate what we're doing today, which is getting to know you from Wolfer the book as best I can because we're going to do a podcast on that just itself really soon, and I'm excited about that. So, But in that book, um, you talk about how you, know, you got to a place in your childhood where you trapped and you hunted these animals um, like birds and, and things like that. And you studied their feathers and their teeth and all that stuff. And so there's some kind of, you know, there's some funny and not so funny stories that even Jenny, um, your wife, uh, you know, kind of, you know, rolled her eyes out like, Oh good God, Carter. But in the same breath, you also talk about how you found yourself you know, making pets out of these wild animals. And so for someone like me, who is a huge wildlife nut, right, and I understand that making them pets thing, because, you know, I had my skunks and a few others, but 
tell me a little bit about how you, you know, that, that you know, crowy, and then you had the porcupine throughout that, but how you can differentiate between that scientific part of you as a child, I think, um, that was like fascinated, I'm assuming, by the makeup of these animals, you know, the beak, the teeth, the, the feathers, and all of that, and then also by killing it, and then also wanting that to be a pet. Well, yeah, I don't want people to ever get the wrong idea that all I did was run around and kill animals my whole life, because growing up in the Midwest during that time, most boys and some girls, I think, we all grew up shooting guns and living in a rural setting where my grandmother had chickens and geese and, and we had sheep, so livestock was part of our life too and and there come a time when when i was a small boy that you helped butcher the chickens so early on in my young life this was the norm this was the way all people generally lived in the midwest we lived on the food and and products that we grew but at the same time there was a lot of times that i ended up uh finding a nest of little mice that my dog had dug up, and then I would end up with mice in the house and, <laughs> you know, trying to, you know, feed them milk. And and I, you know, even pocket gophers, I learned early on, too, that I catch a pocket gopher, I might make a pet out of him and put him in a cardboard box and got up in the morning and found a big hole shooting the side. <laughs> learned really quick that you don't put rodents in cardboard boxes. <laughs> But growing up as a kid, I mean, we had always had dogs, always had cats, and early on, about that same age, I started, uh, my dad introduced me to barn pigeons, and by the time I was a senior in high school, I had like 800 pigeons, too. Good God. Hand-reared lots of baby pigeons throughout my life. I raised baby rabbits, baby squirrels. So... uh, it really gave me an opportunity to get acquainted with wild birds and animals and help them live as well as, you know, help some die too. And, um, but it, it had a huge, uh, impact on me growing up that I couldn't imagine doing anything else, but being a biologist someday or a veterinarian. So I used to order, um, send my letters out with my stamp on them and order all these uh, mail order booklets, you know, be a veterinarian, be a, be a wildlife biologist, be a government trapper, be all these things. Uh, Northwest School of Conservation and then also taxidermy books. And uh, my first jobs, too, were working on farms, you know, cleaning up manure and baling hay and eventually working on a turkey farm where we, the owner grew 90,000 turkeys a year. Oh, God. So it was no other choice in my life, I don't think, than uh, being associated with uh, wildlife and livestock. And, uh, of course, by the time I got out of high school, there was no other direction to go than if I wanted to be a biologist, I had to go to college. And uh, so my coursework 
I kind of lined it out in a science field and took the various steps from junior college to undergraduate school at Iowa State University, a wonderful ag and vet school there, and, and eventually got a master's degree in wildlife. How much of um, how much of that your college career? Because I know your dad passed when you were really young. Um, you were a, um, in your what year was that? Junior year. I I was just twenty years old when my yeah. dad died. So and he was such a pivotal part of your life, and um, I know that was that had to be just difficult. But there were some other people in your life that were I feel pretty. Pretty um, um, important in in shaping your college and and I think your future, and um, you know people like um, Dick Bishop who gave you your first, um, I guess government job right would be considered uh, as far as your your biology aid job with him and the guys that that you worked with in that position who kind of pushed you to get your masters and and really kind of kept you in that in that scholastic um, arena. Would would that be fair to say? Yeah, well, going back to my dad, I mean, he gave me a work ethic because uh, he was a workaholic. He was a community man. He was the fire chief of our community with the volunteer fire department, and he was in Lions Club. And so um, he was a hardworking guy and always helping people and, uh, with his uh, being my role model, taught me to work, work hard and uh, do whatever you did to completion and do it the best you could. And then, uh, referring to Dick Bishop and some of the mentors in my life, so, yeah, when I was started out in college, a lot of my friends dropped out. And then, of course, we dropped out of college during those years. So the Vietnam War scooped up yeah. most of those people and. So you could have a college to some other So it was one motivation to, you know, really want to go off to the Vietnam War. And then by the same token, uh, there's these temptations, like sitting in school, you stay looking at the window and seeing the sun shining and thinking I'm wasting my life away. <laughs> so there was times I wanted to drop out and, and uh, you know, take the shortcut. And some of my mentors, uh, Dick Bishop, worked for the Iowa Conservation Commission. Now I believe they call it the DNR. Ah, gotcha. But they always told me that, uh, you know, we'd hire you if, you if you take it to completion, if you get your degree. But don't, don't think you're going to quit and drop out of school and be my technician for the rest of your life because I'm not going to hire you. I don't want somebody who quit. Ah. So with all that kind of influence... Um, I stuck to it and got all my college out of the way in, in uh, I think it was like eight years straight that uh, I was going to school after high school. And, and uh, absolutely, I call it getting your ticket punched. It was worth it in the, in the end. Um, all kinds of opportunities came my way, and had I not had my degrees, I couldn't have... Uh, qualified for the work, and I couldn't have advanced in that work. So uh, it was my decision to listen to my mentors. 
was a smart decision, I think, for everybody, just, just to point that out. But I think that, um, you know, we all have, I think if we all look back, you know, we have people in our life that were very pivotal, you know, in the directions that we went. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, these guys taught you, you know, what was your trade? I mean, they, they really helped to, to hone, I think, your trade in a lot of ways. I think your your dad was your 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 main component there but i think these guys kind of put you on that career path in a lot of ways and and um you know kind of you ended up out in montana partly because of of one of these boys so or gentlemen men i'm not even sure how old <laughs> they were to you but so to call them boys would be incorrect but you you know you you had that just that innate nature kind of thing. But you were an Iowa farm boy, the flatlands of the Midwest. And, you know, you ended up in, uh, you ended up in Montana at Wolf Point, which I find kind of interesting, Wolf Point. (laughs) But um, if only you knew then what you were going to head into years later. But um, I think that, you know, that's, it's just always to me looking back at folks that, that were pivotal in my life and, and in some cases wishing I could have noticed or noted that earlier on when maybe they were still around or not. But um, you did. You, you, you went to college. You got this incredible degree. You went back home. Um, you helped keep your mom going as best you could and, and family and stuff and got married and had baby and but you ended up in Montana at Wolf Point to work for was the Department of Livestock in Montana on, um, what was it, uh, rabies issues or something to that effect. So you went out and took a train. Rabies in North Iowa mammals, so it kind of gave me a specialty and an expertise working with uh, the science around rabies. And then when I got out of graduate school, I had no intentions of leaving the Midwest. I was going to remain there and work for Dick Bishop, who was the state waterfowl biologist, and do do more of that Midwest kind of wildlife work. No large predators other than the red fox in our area. And I... uh, it was uh, unexpected that I would end up out there, but they were looking for a rapes expert at the time with the Montana Department of Livestock. And uh, in that transition, leaving the Midwest, going to Montana and knowing very little about the West at all, and then I'd been to the Black Hills as a kid, I was just fascinated with the new scenery and the landscape. And uh, I think almost like anyone who's once got a dose of the West, I could never imagine moving back to the Midwest after yeah. that. It's pretty spectacular. And, yeah, and then my my rural background in Iowa came in really handy going out West because all of the work that my career brought me as I lived out west, had a lot to do with uh, the rural environment and rural people. So it was helpful to me to be able to uh, fall back on my 
experiences in the Midwest around livestock to work with uh, farmers and ranchers out west later. How did that, so when you came, when you went out to Montana, you, like I said, you started with the livestock um, uh, ag, uh, Department of Agriculture in Montana, and that was just a part-time position for you, and you really got to, to kind of love the landscape and all that, as you said. And then you went on to work with Wildlife Services, which ended up being your the main chunk of your career was with Wildlife Services. And what was your main what was your main because uh, um, you had many hats for the most part in Wildlife Services um, from the beginning um, to the end of uh, uh, to to your retirement. But what was the um, what was the poll and what were some of the things that you uh, did and learned with Wildlife Services that um, I think that you could get from them um, and, and kept you in that, um, I mean, in, in that position for, for, for 30 years, basically. Yeah, I, was, uh, I worked for Wildlife Services for approximately 26 years of my life. And again, it was a perfect fit because, of course, uh, Wildlife Services were a branch of, at that time, they were under Department of Interior, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And later, uh, the agency transferred over to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. But nonetheless, um, when I first started working for Wildlife Services, they gave me a job to trap golden eagles that were killing sheep or newborn lambs. And uh, so I conducted that project for them as on a kind of a seasonal, temporary basis. And uh, that spring, I trapped 149 golden eagles. uh, They were weakened foothold traps. Didn't hurt the eagles at all. Just uh, caught them by a toe, usually. And then we uh, put them in boxes and then held them in buildings and then eventually released them all with bands on their legs so we could mark them and turn them loose in Colorado and North West Montana, and in Yellowstone National Park, just oh, wow. try to break up the migration. So the eagles weren't killed. They were all just uh, relocated away from the problem they were causing. So getting that project put, uh, put me in good light with the agency, and they realized I had a college degree, which was pretty uncommon at that time for people employed by wildlife services you could get the job with them if you could hunt and trap and get the job done uh high school degree was plenty so they gave me a promotion immediately upon finishing the eagle project and i became a supervisor and moved to helena montana and then uh so i was kind of a supervisory trapper and eventually worked in uh, various aspects of predator control, mountain lions, black bears, uh, grizzly bears, and of course all the other smaller carnivore critters too. um, 16 years of my career, I worked on uh, problem grizzly control along the Rocky Mountain front from Helena, Montana up to Chief Mountain on the Blackfoot Indian Reservation. So we foot-snared 
grizzly bears, never killed any of those either. We relocated them for uh, for the sake of stopping damage and hoping that we put them in a different environment further away in a different mountain range that they wouldn't be a problem. To cattle ranchers or... Well, most of the time, uh, the grizzlies, they killed some cattle, but mostly it was uh, domestic sheep that were grazed in the summer in the mountains along the Rocky Mountain front. So several thousand sheep would come in that area. And either around the 4th of July, the grizzly bears, uh, they, you know, they can eat grass and they eat meat too, but it seemed like grizzlies all seemed to shift over and want to eat more mutton. So um, they start killing sheep around uh, early July, and so that's what we spent most of the summer doing was catching problem grizzlies and relocating them. What years were were those, Carter? I mean, um, that you were doing the grizzly bear stuff? Well, almost immediately from uh, seems to be our 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 the, the the big question right i mean how many how much wildlife is the human 
animal willing to tolerate and and how how can we coexist um, without it taking the human animal out of its comfort zone um, I think that's the scary part for us as advocates yeah, is trying know, to figure I, that out when I went to college you know one of the features you talk about is you know biological carrying capacity we teach you about you know every species uh, needs a certain amount of space food and water to thrive and when all of those needs are met, uh, they can be, you know, very sustainable numbers, sometimes too many. And now they, you know, the, the politics of having predators and, and many species around is, is talking more about social caring capacity. It's not how many can the country hold, it's how many will people tolerate. So that's uh, how a lot of species are being managed these days is trying to keep them within tolerable numbers that uh, humans are willing to live with. And that becomes a real serious problem with species like grizzly bears and then uh, the wolf, too. It's just simply if, if they're allowed to, they can live just about anywhere on just about anything. But when you're talking about human agriculture and, and uh, human presence, that creates a huge conflict and something's got to give, and that's usually the bear and the wolf. I noticed, and we knew this, you know, back when I um, became active in advocating for wolves, and um, I had some really great educators who... <laughs> kind of grabbed me by my young, wet ears, I should say, and just said, there's a bigger picture, there's a bigger picture than just wolves. And, um, you know, the, there were some real good guys, anyway, that, that, that kind of opened my eyes a little bit to the bigger picture of public lands versus just the animal itself on the lands. And it was more like you need to really be thinking about the public land issue, not just the wolf issue or the bear issue. They're just kind of like the pawns in the game. And what we recognized back then was, you know, grizzly bears weren't even on the radar, well, the the obvious radar um, of being persecuted. But we knew that once the wolves were kind of pushed aside, if that ever were to happen, um, the grizzly bear was going to be the next one in the crosshairs. And as hunting became relevant with wolves, um, you know, obviously it's just gotten, you know, more heated. But um, once that started to happen, then all of a sudden the grizzly bear did. It came into the crosshairs and is now you know, that, that note of contention. My problem with this is is that we hear that, you know, when I talk to hunters and I had I, I in a family of hunters, when I when I talk to them and I hear um, the reasoning from friends and, and so on for wanting to hunt grizzly, it it's not about conservation. It's just that excitement of it. You know, the excitement of being able to hunt a grizzly bear. Um and I think that <laughs> I think that's where I I, I disconnect um, from 
that is that it's not about sustainability. It's not about conservation. It's literally about the thrill of the hunt. And I don't know, is that a human, is that a human thing? Is it just an animal in us, that predatory animal where we, we want to dominate something or kill? I just don't understand that. But I went off on a tangent, so I apologize. But I think that that I, I, I just, you know, I realize that we have to look at the social capacity, the social tolerance in some cases, but I do believe that we, we have plenty of lands in certain areas where, you know, we need to um, recognize that they can be filled with wildlife and that it actually does benefit us as a, uh, as a species alone, but, but our ecosystems benefit from that. Do, am, I, am I just way too um, tree hugger? for this, <laughs> for, for this, or, or, uh, you know, where do I stand, I guess, in that realm? And, and am I wrong? Am I right? Am I, you know, should I just back off of that? I don't know. Well, I have, I have some really strong feelings about uh, public lands too. You know, private, private land is one thing, public land is another, but it's managed very much the same. And that's, was one of the problems always with grizzly bear management when we were working with problem grizzlies is the fact that uh, they're native species living mostly on our public lands. And then, of course, there's some checkerboarding where private property is adjacent. But um, the thing is, in, in a lot of those uh, public land areas in the summertime, they have grazing allotments that are, you know, provided to ranchers. Uh, ranchers could only be about so big in size and have so the capacity for so much livestock. The, the public land grazing allotments uh, near the ranches, uh, it allows them to operate on a greater scale. So uh, seasonally, usually about June, cattle and sheep are moved into many of those lands so that uh, are public, which belongs to everyone, really, in the United States. And that's where the problem begins, is that you know, non-native cattle and sheep are placed in those public land grazing units which are normally occupied by, you know, not only grizzlies, but uh, black bears, mountain lions, and wolves, too. So um, I guess I've got a problem removing native predators because they're killing livestock on on public lands, but that's the way the the system works these days. So... um, Certainly, the capacity of some of these large predators to live and thrive in those places is diminished because of the fact that they do conflict with uh, the, the domestic livestock portion. So basically, now, for killing grizzlies, I've never really had a desire to myself, but certainly, you know, there's, there's an absolute degree of machoism that. Uh, a lot of people would love to kill a grizzly bear, and I'm not sure what drives them toward that. You know, when I was younger, I, I killed a couple of mountain lions and found out that I didn't get any thrill out of that. And I killed a couple of three black bears, and, and same thing. You know, the effect and the impact on me was that, yeah, bear meat, uh, it's edible, but not that great. And once you kill a bear or two, Usually the result is 
you get a bear hide or a bear skull. And then, of course, I mentioned a little bit, too, I was a taxidermist for 52 years of my life, so I certainly understand how the trophy aspect of hunting enters the scene. And, you know, and I, I argue trophy hunting to me was killing a beautiful ring pheasant, which they're not even native to the United States. But nonetheless, to me, a trophy is just a beautiful bird with beautiful plumage. But others trophy hunting is you know, getting a, a black bear and a grizzly bear, you know, shooting all these, these big predators that have big teeth and claws. And I can't quite get in everybody's mind why they're out there doing what they do, but uh, there's different reasons that drive people to be hunters. And, and kill animals like that. But the grizzly bear, uh, I don't know. I always enjoyed seeing them. I'm just thinking such a magnificent animal and so unique and not that many of them that uh, I certainly didn't want to contribute to the uh, death of grizzly if I could help it. Yeah, I think my, my I, it's it's always, I, I, I try to, I try to put myself in um the position of somebody that I may oppose or, or somebody else's position to figure out what, what their mindset is. And, and that, that, um, it, well, it doesn't go very well with me because I can't, I can't figure it out sometimes. And so, you know, I, I know when I first read Wolfer and, and Mark Cook, you know, my colleague, um, Marcus, he said when we first spoke and I, um, you know, became a wolf advocate and Mark helped me get there. But he said, I want you to do me one favor right now. I want you to go out and get this book. And, um, that was, it was 2011. He said, I want you to get the book Wolfer by a cat named Carter Neymar. And I said, okay, well, the name of, you know, I'm ignorant as heck. And I grabbed this book and I start reading it and I thought, who the hell is this guy? You know, <laughs> he's gotta be, you know, he's a trapper, he's all these things. So I had this visual in my head about you. But more importantly, you know, my thoughts on trapping have never changed um, ever. I despise it. I find it a horrendous thing, right, a practice. But my views on you did. And actually through the book, I got to know who you were um, and, and and I want everybody else to get to know who you are um, as a person, because trapping isn't what defines you. Um, everything that you've done and things that you stand for even today, um, I think defined you. And, and, and I, I find it, I, I find it really difficult to get into a trapper's head and understand what makes a trapper think that trapping is being a part of nature and that they feel really a big part of nature. But through you, I have an understanding that, you know, when you trapped and you did these things, you literally had to know and you studied that. And I get it in my way of observing wolves and trying to figure out what they're going to do next. But it's that understanding their behaviors and knowing if you can get in kind of ahead of that, um, knowing what they're going to smell and eat and what have you. But is that just a trapper's kind of, does that encapsulate all trappers or... Do you know what I mean? Because I've run into some that I just think are a little sociopathic. <laughs> yeah, well, I can tell you how a trapper thinks because uh, 
going back to Iowa and, and, you know, catching my first mink and catching my first muskrat. Each species was unique and the the habitat it lived in and all this and that. And, but, uh, I really was fascinated with red foxes. I started hunting them, you know, and occasionally you get one, but, um, I worked with a fellow named George Good, who was another one of my mentors back then. I met him through the Iowa Conservation Commission. And he was a fur trapper and, and was a uh, professional fox trapper. And he taught me how to catch fox. He, he didn't teach many, but he taught me because uh, we kind of worked together. And he just took me under his wing and decided I'll share my secrets with you. So I started trapping foxes and got very, very good at it. And first you got to understand, you know, that foxes, at least in those days in that country, very prolific animals. They, foxes, coyotes, wolves all have a high reproductive rate because they have a high mortality rate. And one of the causes of mortality, of course, are trappers that kill them. But I was fascinated with George because he would catch 300 fox every winter within a 20-mile radius of his farm down in uh, southern or central Iowa anyway. And he told me that, you know, Carter, you're not going to wipe out or extinguish red foxes because they're very prolific. And he took a certain number every year, and the following year there were just as many back. So being a biologist, but also wanting to... Uh, live up to the um, achievements that George was making of catching 300 fox was something I wanted to do. It's, it was just like a goal. And I felt like a pocket gopher is a pocket gopher, a fox is a fox. They're going to replace themselves. I'm not wiping them out, so therefore uh, I can justify trapping and killing these animals mm-hmm. so i did get to did develop the skills from george to catch hundreds and then with me i can't say how it affects others but once i achieved that skill level and showed my friends i could do it and proved to myself i could do it and certainly there's an ego there wanting to be the best at what you do. I came to a point in my life where the thrill started to go out of it. And I didn't need to do that any longer. I didn't need to nurture this, whatever, this drive to keep killing foxes. And so, I mean, we can get into that later in my career, but um, I just didn't find it satisfying anymore. And so my trapping began to diminish. And I think my other opportunities as a professional trapper working for the United States government and eventually I'm putting radio collars on grizzly bears and wolves and things satisfied me that uh, I don't have to prove anything to anyone anymore. I can contribute to research and I don't have to kill animals any longer. So that's, uh, 
how it affected me. Yeah. But I can't say that all trappers look at it like I did. Yeah, I've I've definitely you know I've I've um, I think that's that to me was the biggest thing in in getting to know you was, you know it, it and I think um, you know I mean trapping trapping definitely you know it, it gave you um, education. It helped you get there, right? It helped pay for your education and other things, but and it gave you a career, which, you know, is what it is in that aspect. And your career had its purpose. But I think more importantly, pushing you forward into your career um, once you became, you know, the 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 main wolf guy, right? I mean, you were really such a key key player in um, the wolf reintroduction and going into Canada and. Um, you know, trapping these wolves. And I think your live trapping aspects, I, I, I mean, you fascinate me with your ability to know um, h- how how to tension a trap to where it won't hurt, crush, maim, do anything to an animal. I always found that fascinating. And um, your ability to make potions, <laughs> which, which always gross me out, but that you can make potions to, and I call it potions, to attract these animals, you know, I mean, who in the hell comes up with this stuff? You know, <laughs> I mean, you, it's kind of an interesting and intriguing kind of pastime. Well, you live, know? <laughs> living as a living as a trapper is um, it, it would probably amaze most people if not, you know, find it objectionable, but. Yeah, in the world of the trapper, of course, making bait is a big thing. That's the potion you refer to, yeah. and mixing up all the uh, decomposing animal parts and things that, that wild animals find, you know, they're very receptive to those foul smells that, that humans can't stand to be around. And Yeah, I mean, the lifestyle I've lived, most people can't even imagine it, and... Uh, you know, those who like to hear about it, I tell, and others, I, I withhold that information, <laughs> thinking I'm probably offending a lot of people, too. But, yeah, trapping is uh, a whole other world, and, and it goes back to the days of the mountain men, and it uh, there was a time when it served its purpose, and yeah. for me, it was... I went that route, and then at some point I, I jumped off the merry-go-round and decided to go a different direction. Well, I love the direction you went, and so you know, with that, um, you know, you you went on obviously with your career, twenty-six years with Wildlife Services. <clears throat> excuse me, and you know, how can I put this? Wildlife Services is kind of it, it's you you made. A, a, a big impact there and I know that towards the end of your career um, it wasn't always easy I think those last few years to be the guy that you are and I, I do hold you in high esteem I really do you were a man with great integrity and um, blatant honesty and I find those two qualities um, not only rare but I, I truly um, admire them greatly. And I think that when you're in a, in a, uh, a career or a position <clears throat> where you're dealing with a certain 
um, type of people. I mean, you know, wildlife services to me is very much, you know, we, we pay, that's a taxpayer thing. That's, that's our money as taxpayers goes to, to wildlife services, but they don't cater to everyone. Wildlife services, they cater to an industry and the majority of that industry is ranchers. And I think I would be correct to say that. Um, but I think, you know, later on in your career, and I'm curious about this, but how difficult was it? And at what point in time um, did things become, or did they become a little bit harder to do your job because of your honesty? Was it with the reintroduction of wolves and when wolves, uh, wolves were prevalent um, in livestock depredation and all that and did it get more difficult at that point or did you see yourself, you know, kind of butting heads a little bit with ranchers even prior to that time frame? Well, uh, working for wildlife services, of course, um, I've kind of coined the phrase where we were the hired gun of the livestock industry because certainly going back to the early 1900s you know, wildlife services came into being and was funded and it is uh, taxpayers paying for a an agency to eliminate exterminate kill animals that come into conflict with people and that's always been the heart and soul of the program you know like when i went to work in the 70s uh during Nixon administration in 72 is when they started to ban the toxicants. But at that time, you know, we were, the agency was involved in killing rodents. So poisoning on private and public lands, you know, poisoning ground squirrels and poisoning pocket gophers. And then on the other hand, we were poisoning coyotes and killing predators that probably could help eat some of those ground squirrels. And uh, so the agency, at least in the West where I was working, was pretty much built around supporting rural livestock and grain producers, protecting their products and their produce. And... uh, if you went to other parts of the United States, of course, there's there's other tasks that wildlife services were doing, but not so much out here. Um, one of the things they were doing and are still doing is, you know, keeping airports safe, keeping migratory birds and and animals and things off of runways so that airliners don't collide with them. So there's things that a services they produce that are useful to you know all citizens. But in the West, livestock death was often and simply attributed to predators, and nobody really worried too much about whether they got it right or wrong. Especially when you know we were in the business killing coyotes year-round anyway. So that so when somebody said coyotes killed my sheep or my calf or whatever, nobody really worried about it. You just went out and killed more coyotes. And uh, I found it necessary, just I guess by my work ethics and my dad teaching me to be 
Aaron's. I looked at all his livestock death, and I really wanted to know, you know, what did it. So I looked at it pretty closely, and I was very, very careful. And when it was caused by predators, I said so. And when it wasn't, I said so. And what really caused me a lot of conflict is when wolves showed up. Uh, we went through this early phase when uh, wolves started showing up in Montana from Canada on their own, walking into the state in the mid-1980s. Uh, they'd been gone for, for decades. Nobody dealt with them. And suddenly, as they got publicity and press in the newspapers, uh, we entered a phase I called wolf hysteria, mm-hmm. where suddenly everybody looked at every dead animal differently. And every dead calf or cow or sheep that was laying in a field, somebody would say, gosh, I wonder if a wolf killed that. And that's about the time that my responsibilities phased into dealing with those uh, reports and the hysteria that went with them. So I found it challenging to go out there and look at dead livestock and remind people, well, you, you know, there's very few wolves around. So the likelihood is, it's very unlikely that wolves cause this problem. And, and of course, there's no sign or evidence. And um, it became troublesome for me from that point forward of having to be the, the guy out there in the field telling ranchers that wolves didn't do it. Something else happened to the animal. And then as more wolves came into the country and, and more calls came in, um, my agency, you know, was politically the pressure was on that, uh, what are you going to do about these wolves? Well, there's not a whole lot we can do about these wolves. Well, by God, you can't let them eat all the livestock. And the point was they weren't eating everyone's livestock. There was a few problems, but not that many. And so that's what really, uh, got my career rolling with wolves. And it, uh, it took all the skills I'd ever learned from every mentor I'd ever had in my life to maintain your integrity and your credibility and your honesty and, and uh, not create political suicide. Which I think would have been easy to do, but I think it, um, which again, I, I, I credit you for that. I, I think the hard part is, and I think this is where your integrity is, is outstanding is that, and, and truthfully, um, it's brave to be able to go against your, um, well, the, the, your, the, the people you work with so closely and those that you are friends with and, you know, it basically become a very big part of your life and, and to not play the status quo. And I think a lot of times with, um, and I'm just going to pick on wildlife services simply because we're talking about it, but you know, that's a certain type of folks, you know, I mean, they're living next to the ranchers. So it would be easier to say, yeah, Jojo, wolves killed your, killed your cow, you bet. And just, just to keep the status quo and keep your, you know, keep things good, I guess, to, to, to lack of words, I guess, but to keep things okay between you and them as far as friendships and, 
and just being the good guy. I mean, you weren't always the the good guy to these people, you know? I mean, you weren't popular in a lot of ways. Um, and then when wolves got reintroduced, did that just, you know, you went up and you helped bring him back. And there's a lot of things which I really can't wait to talk about um, Wolfer um, and do the podcast because, you know, that some of the stories just truly, um, until people actually get to meet you, um, there's just this visual <laughs> of who you are. Um, and I got to tell everybody, you're really a really big, gentle giant, and you're a wonderful man. But I think that for your career aspect, I mean, once the wolves were reintroduced, you really did kind of get spat upon in a lot of ways from your, your own agency. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard in life to be unbiased because, uh, like, we all have bias in us. Sure. And yet, if you're going to do a job, somehow you got to discard your biases the best you can, anyway. And that's that's what the problem for me was: is that uh, you had to be honest. Because once you start lying about what you're seeing and doing, then, you know, one lie has to cover another lie, and that's no way to live. So um, I've always been candid and forthright and told it like it is. And it made it difficult because the path of least resistance, I think, is what people seek, if you can. Yeah. So it, it would be simple to just say, well, yeah, you know, Wolf did it, and you would have a lot of friends and a lot of pats on the back, but it's just not the truth. So uh, I made up my mind it was going to be my way or the highway, and, um, you know, as we talk about it more, um, it almost led to the highway. Yeah, yeah. Because politically... There are certain expectations of you to, uh, you know, support the industry, so support the agency and support the industries that you look out for and protect. And I think you can do it honestly, too. I mean, absolutely, you can do it the right way or the wrong way. And, and if you're doing it the right way and for the right reasons, um, there's no reason a program can't work that way, too. And so I've stuck to that. Uh, I, I guess I've tried to take the moral high road as much as I could, and it's it's paid dividends. And uh, in turn, I've mentored a lot of young people through my career and have passed on the same choices, I guess, and judgments to them. And uh, I know it's helped them all because without some guidance and some encouragement and people to fall back on to support you and you're starting to doubt yourself, uh, it, it can be a tough career. And, and wolves, uh, since that's what we'll probably be talking a lot about, uh, wolves are just such a polarizing, emotionally charged topic. No kidding. That... Uh, it takes a pretty tough, durable person to work in that environment and survive. 
Well, I, yeah, there's no, no doubt about that. I mean, there's very few. I was told once by someone that there is one hell of a boneyard out there full of wolf biologists. You know, you guys get eaten up real, real damn fast and discarded pretty quickly and easily. And I think that those that stuck around and those that are, um, that are, are good at what they do and are, um, I don't know, for me, looked at as um, mentors for me, um, their honesty and their integrity were always intact, and they were they were able to land on their feet. And that's obviously you, um, Doug Smith, who obviously um, is another one that is has you know the longevity of his career is amazing because um, he does you know speak his honesty. But for you, I think that you know you continue to move forward. You were such, like I said, and we will talk about it um, later, but. You know, to put things out there, you were such an integral part of bringing wolves back to the landscapes in Yellowstone and in Idaho back in 1995 and 96. And truthfully, without you, I think it would have been a really difficult task to have um, to have been had. I think you you were such a huge part of that. And then that ability to move forward and, you know, try to help um keep them on the landscape and try to, to, to kind of buffer that, that rancher, um, wolf kind of thing. And I really want to get into, um, and obviously, you know, talking about the reintroduction and all that we'll get into in the next podcast. But for me, I think that, um, you know, you went through your career, you retired. Um, I'm curious, um, when you retired, what did you really think that your retirement was going to look like? Did you have any clue that you were going to continue doing what you've done? Uh, well, I think I was one of them guys who never really thought about retirement. and It almost frightened me when the time comes to say that uh, they don't need you anymore and uh, that your usefulness has come to an end, so to speak. And... I think as quickly as I retired, there were people who said, hey, Carter, we do need you yet. So um, I was able to take the expertise that I had collected over all those years and was able to keep on working, so to speak. In fact, I think now I work harder over a bigger area than I did back then. Mm-hmm. But I just felt there was an obligation to when I retired and uh, wolves were still in the process of recovering their numbers and populations were growing and the feds were stepping away and the states were stepping in. I just felt uh, at that time things were just in, in chaos in, in my view of things and how wolves were being managed and going to be managed. So I just felt like I can't just walk away and, and leave it go. I've got to stay involved. I've got to have some influence on the way and the direction things were going. And, and there was that need at the time. I'm not sure 
at this point, whether there's still a need for me or not. But um, I think I had a lot of influence after I retired in 2006 by helping the states like Washington, Oregon. I helped them set up a lot of their programs, worked with the tribes in Washington, um, even helped Idaho Fish and Game for several years, you know, continuing to collar wolves. And so uh, there was a lot still to be done and a lot of opportunities to share my experiences and expertise and do a lot of mentoring, training, advising uh, during those years. And, and I'm still doing workshops today because sometimes I just don't feel that the job is, is done yet. I think that um, your your the need for you is extreme. <laughs> we, we need you like never before, and I think um, you know. When I got into the game, I'm still I'm still very new compared to and you know so many of you out there. But one thing I've recognized. Um, from when I first began uh, being, you know, being uh, an advocate for wolves, is I had this stupid, naive theory that, oh, in five years, everything's going to be okay, and then I'll be able to go on to something. Yeah, no, I picked, um, you know, my passion is wolves. This is a lifetime fight, and I really didn't think it was going to be that way. And I, did you think back in, you know, we'll just start in 95, 96 with reintroduction, did you think that we would be where we are today? Um, it's worse. I mean, it's just escalated. No, I, in 95 and 96, when I was part of the reintroduction team and, and the EIS team that uh, planned this whole exercise, I I had really no concept of where this was going to go. And, and uh, when I went up to Canada, you know, the trappers up there that I worked with, that helped us catch wolves for the reintroduction. They, they said, well, if you have a lot of deer now, the wolves will thrive. And I thought, well, okay, uh, if you say so. And uh, watching the population take off like it did and, and the successful recovery, and they, the wolves never missed a lick. And I give the wolves a tremendous amount of credit. We, we had a fabulous team of scientists engineer this whole thing but also the wolves being prolific and resilient and did their part and I did realize that working for the federal government at the time that uh, our decision making was a little more insulated you might say we were a little safer ground because we had congressmen upset we had governors upset there was a lot of uh, politicians jumping down our necks, but working for the feds, I always felt kind of like, um, we hear you and we'll do what we can do, but we didn't necessarily have to do anything uh, too extremely political one way or the other if we thought it was not the right choice. And I did worry, of course, that eventually the plan was to hand wolf management off to the states. Yeah. And state politics, local politics, there's a lot more vulnerabilities 
for the agency leaders within the state agencies. And there's just a huge influence by all of the industries that um, governors and congressmen and legislators answer to. So as I watch the wolf numbers grow and, and the, the politics and emotions grow and the frustrations within the politics grow, uh, I kind of anticipated that the states are probably not going to have the liberties to do some things that we could do as feds. And I think that's really what you're seeing play out today is that um, at the state level, there's a lot more thumbs on the political buttons. For sure. And you're answering to all kinds of industries and interest groups. And uh, who knows which way the political winds will blow. But since wolves uh, came in, you know, under federal leadership and under a federal program of recovery, uh, that walked on a lot of state rights, which I think laid the foundation for the conflicts that seem to persist today. With that, with that statement, um, I am now back in Colorado, and you know we've got the uh, the initiative on the ballots for November to reintroduce wolves back into Colorado along the um, uh, west of the Continental Divide. Now, I, I have my thoughts and my feelings of that, and do I want them back? Absolutely. Um, I also have a feeling that, that education is a very big part of that reintroduction. And I know that um, you know, this has become a state issue, not a federal thing. So we brought it back as a state um, uh, uh, um Ballot, so it, it, it's up to the the people of the state of Colorado to vote whether or not to bring them back. And what I'm finding, and it's kind of what I thought, but um, what I'm seeing is that it's still a really big, big issue, and it's still the polarized issue, and it's still the same BS that we've heard for decades now about wolves, and it's still the same lies, and it's 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 propaganda, and it. It's, you know, chaos. Um, and what I'm noticing is that there's still going to be those that don't want wolves and those that don't want wolves are still going to blame somebody because they didn't have the voice to, to, to stop the reintroduction of wolves. Um, whether it's at a state level or a federal level, there's still going to be a blame. And so what I'm hearing now is, well, all the city slickers are going to bring them back, and we, the ranchers in the rural communities, have to pay the price. And so, um, you know, we're still going to be sitting, in my opinion, again, this is my opinion, so I don't want to get, you know, I'm, I'm bring the heat, I guess, to me. But I, um, I, I just question, you know, how do you see a difference between a reintroduction in Colorado versus, say, the reintroduction that um, was had in 95 and, and 96? And how, how do you see that being, how do you see it going to be different here than it was, you know, done there and back then? Well, well, uh, 
there's uh, there's so much history with wolf reintroduction. It happened 25 years ago under, first of all, it was a congressional mandate. I mean, it wasn't a couple of biologists got their heads together and said, hey, it would be cool to reintroduce wolves. So, I mean, it, it came from Congress mandating that money be spent, plans be made, and wolves be reintroduced. And we did it as, you know, an experimental, non-essential population so that we had flexibility in what we could do to manage wolves if they became problems. Um, So now you have this um, effort again happening. It's reflective of what happened 25 years ago, except... This one came through the ballot box, so to speak. So immediately there's different conditions than there were back then. And uh, with the states doing it again, like I said, there's so many more interest groups that all want to be heard. And then, uh, as I said a little bit ago, you know, there's this history of 25 years after Wolf reintroduction. Um, the interest groups involved today, everyone has a better strategy than they had 25 years ago. They've seen what happened. They've seen the history. They see the conflicts and those who feel walked on and their property rights violated and the list goes on, I think everyone is in a little bit more of a defensive posture today than they would have been 25 years ago, because nobody really had ever done it before then. So I see Colorado as similar in some ways, but totally different in other ways, that um, a state population of people are going to decide you know, what course of action they're going to take. And it's, you know, there's certain things that have played out for the last 25 years, too, is, you know, the urbanites against the rural folks. And like anything, like you go from eastern United States to the western U.S., the western U.S. has some wide open spaces yet, and they have public lands, and they, they have... Um, still a pretty free environment to enjoy many things that people back east don't enjoy anymore right. just due to human population. So I think narrowing it down to the state of Colorado, I mean, you're seeing that same situation. You're, you're, you kind of feel like the Easterners are making the Westerners conform and have to live with the problem of wolves closer to all the livestock, you know, and the public land grazing and, and all of this. And then I'm doing workshops in Colorado. I've, I've heard firsthand of people saying, you know, that, well, you know, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana has very low human population, which they do. Mm-hmm. So Colorado is arguing that there's so many more people that want to recreate and, and use the land. So. The bottom line is 
everyone's worried that the wounds can't fit in and won't fit in for all these reasons. There was 700,000 deer and elk estimated in the state of Colorado and all of the public lands that are there. Uh, a few hundred wolves will thrive and I think have uh, very little impact on humans. I think humans are going to have a huge impact on the wolves just simply due to all of the various attitudes, values, and behaviors that people have. And, of course, you have established industries, again, especially livestock growers who feel the pinch that, well, when a wolf gets hungry, I know what they're going to be eating. It's not going to be the dogs and cats in town. They're going to be eating their sheep and cows out in the out on the land. So certainly it's going to be a replay of what we've been through for the last 25 years, but a little more concentrated. I think some of my biggest problems, and, you know, we can go on and on and on as, as you, (laughs) as you know, discussing what we can do, what we should do, what we should have done differently and so on and so forth. I mean, I have my, my ideas on on um, basically European models of of, of um, uh, I don't want to say subsidizing, but you know, with with the reintroduction um, 90, 95 and ninety six, you know, we had the livestock loss uh, fund. I believe that was done through DOW, correct? I think. Um, yeah. But defenders of wildlife. Defenders of wildlife. Those compensation. Correct. Payments. And I, I again, don't want to piss off the multitudes, multitude of people out there. But I, what I want to say is that I just kind of have a different, a different view. It's almost like that, the, 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 um, the idea that if something bad happens, I'm going to reward you for it. And I think it just creates a, um, not reward. That's a bad word. I'm going to pay for this. And I, I think that there's some places over in Europe, and I learned this through uh, a conference I went to back in D.C a few years ago with um, uh, where there was some, some folks from Europe and what they've done is they've changed that model, which is we compensate ranchers for living with the wolves. And it's, you know, you learn to thrive, you learn to, 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 to ranch in wild country and we're going to, we're going to subsidize you for this. And I think it changed a lot of, um, a lot of behaviors. And I think that I don't, and I'm naive on this, and this is just an idea in my own, but why are we not looking into those directions instead of, again, the compensation, you keep the status quo, you continue to ranch the way you've always ranched for decades and decades and, you know, hundreds of years where you do what you want on the land and, will pay you for your losses. I think that, you know, we're, we have to progress. We, you know, time is changing and we need to change the way we do things. And it's a business model and you need to change the way you do your business. Is that something that you think is workable or am I just kind of blown in the wind here? Well, the whole issue of compensation is complex put it mildly because there are I think there's ranchers who would probably accept some kind of a compensation measure but 
I know in this region of the country, their uh, compensation has not been well received by a lot of producers too. It's just simply, uh, they feel like somebody's dangling a carrot. Mm-hmm. That if we accept your money, then we're accepting your wolves, and we're not accepting the wolves. We didn't ask for them. We don't want them. So there's ranchers in the West who have refused to take money at all. That yeah. uh, we're not going to take your money because you're buying you're buying our tolerance, and we're not tolerant of what's going on that way. So I'm not sure if money fixes things. Um, in, in all the last 25 years, too, I I don't feel that it buys um, goodwill either as far as, uh, well, let's just give people money and they will accept wolves. And right. they'll learn to live with them because of it. And I haven't seen that either. So... Um, the workshops that I participated in, some we've tried a couple of sessions of, of workshops in Colorado, for instance. And I think one useful approach is just you know, bringing in people who ranch around wolves and show other ranchers that it can be done, that it doesn't have to be one or the other. You know, it's either... Uh, you know, if the wolves come, the livestock go, or vice versa, and uh, you can you can have the best of both worlds if you're willing to open your mind a little bit and, and be progressive about things. Otherwise, uh, we're all just gonna butt heads and, and continue fighting. But I just think, you know, with a little being a little bit careful and being a little bit more observant and not causing huge expenses to any producer that, uh, you know, wolves can be on the landscape. It isn't all or none situation. That's my opinion of it. And of course, uh, when you don't own livestock and uh, you're a wolf biologist telling people, Oh, it'll work. Um, that's not always well accepted either. Well, you've, you've, you know, you're the, (laughs) I find expertise is less accepted. Um, You you know, if you're you're an expert in your field, it's like, I don't want to hear it. You know, people don't want to hear what they don't want to hear. And, you know, I was really hopeful that, you know, educating and having the ability to go through Colorado and try to educate and give the tools to help ranchers um, in wild country, and, and and hoping that they would be more progressive, um, and and have that ability. To say, yes, I want uh, this is going to happen. I mean, I, I just really don't, I don't, um, I don't foresee it not happening. Um, and they're going to come back one way or the other. I would hope. I just think it's taking longer, and I don't know about sustain or viability and all that if they did come back on their own. Uh, because we just are just too happy to kill them, but I I was I'm I'm hopeful that that the the more we plug away at trying to give ranchers the tools and show them that it is possible to have a lucrative business, but you do have to change your business model itself to work in with wildlife. Um, do you? Hmm. 
I know it's difficult. And what you do, I think, is the hardest thing. And I would obviously love to be a part of it. But I, I think that I would just be a wrench in the cog because <laughs> I am that tree hugger. But um, I, I love a good steak as well. So do you see, is it, is it easier to try to make people see something before the inter, you know, the reintroduction would happen, or do you think when it happens, they would be more receptive of the help? Well, I think uh, the tendency right now is to resist. I mean, if you're a livestock producer, for the most part, I think even 25 years ago, they couldn't see anything in it for them. Right. I mean, when you have large canines that weigh 100 pounds running around the landscape. I mean, one of the comparisons used to be that, you know, the rules out west generally are if there's dogs running at large and they're unrestrained and they come onto a livestock producer's place and run their livestock, they know the, the county sheriff, the game warden, or the landowner to shoot those dogs, which is standard operating procedure. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they say now you introduce these wolves, which are wild dogs, and they can run around and we have to be tolerant of them. And that we, you know, eventually they can protect themselves. But in the early stages of wolf recovery, there's restrictions that go with it so that you can't go out and start killing wolves. So producers generally speaking, just don't see anything good come of putting wild dogs back out on the landscape that might eat a sheep or a cow. But, you know, if you look at all the statistics over the last 25 years, most livestock producers aren't going to deal with a wolf in their lifetime or probably even see or hear one. There's going to be some individuals that are going to have to deal with that problem. And until the wolves get to Colorado and establish themselves, no one knows for sure where those problems are going to develop and and which ranchers are going to be affected, which ones aren't. But there are things that can be done. And there are people in Canada and northern or southern Rockies in the northern part of the U.S. here who are growing beef cattle and calves in heavily populated areas of wolves and grizzly bears and having little or no problem. So I still think that eventually those individuals in Colorado who may eventually be affected by wolves could learn a lot. I mean, when we're talking compensation, part of that could be just providing experienced people from other regions of the country that have learned to live with wolves, uh, share that information, and that would diminish and reduce the problems that those ranchers might have. And you're a part of that by doing the, um, you know, traveling through Colorado and trying to you know, set up meetings with these ranchers. And I know that, you know, there's a lot of resistance, but um, I think they're really essential. And if you stop doing that, um, 
I think the conflicts are going to be greater. And if, you know, it's like any other kind of kumbaya saying, but if you can just reach one, <laughs> you know, that's helpful. And I noticed, you know, there's some folks that, that have, you know, are doing some really good work as far as, you know, predator friendly in Montana that, um, you know, it's a little scary to be that one, like you, I think you're a great example of this, you know, that one person that stands out and says, no, I'm going to do this with integrity and I'm going to do things the right way and I'm going to be it honestly. It's really hard to stand against your own um, folks, your own people, your own kind, so to speak. And so those that do, you know, we need to support them. And I think Joe and, you know, the, 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 the folks that you work with, um, with Karen Vardaman and the Roundtable and all that, I mean, I think you guys do great work and I hope that you, um, I hope you continue with that work um, here in Colorado because I, I truly believe education is necessary and, you know, we'll try to do that kind of um, front country, so to speak, um, education, but it's really important to have the expertise of you and the ranchers that are working and know these wolves and understand what it is um, to fend wolves off from, from, from livestock and, and how to handle your, you know, your, your dead piles, so to speak, which they still won't do in Montana and um, I believe Idaho. But I think that, I think you really, you're, you're, you need to continue that work here. Um, that's being selfish because I really, <laughs> I think it's really important for, for those of us that are advocating, um, really need you guys to continue what you do because it is so important. But, um, so with that, like I said, I can't wait to do, I can't, can't wait to do the podcast, um, to cover Wolfer, your memoir. I think that is one of the greatest books ever written. Truthfully, anybody who wants to understand, um, wildlife services understand you. I think that, um, it, and, and the reintroduction of wolves. And I mean, there's so many things that are packed into just that one book. And then you've got Wolfland, which is just that continuation, um, of who you are and your, your, um, you know, your, your notes that you've kept since 1973, which I find fascinating. Um, and then you're writing another book. So we're just going to continue the trilogy. Um, so I'm really excited to, to continue on with that. But today I want to, I, there's just a, a question I want to ask you, and that is, um, what, what is something that you want people to know about you that maybe they don't know, or maybe they've got wrong? <laughs> just one Carl. well just uh, one <laughs> i'm I, I i like to feel i'm multi-dimensional and that i am not all of one thing or another but i don't know i just feel like um you have to try and achieve a balance in your life and try to look at all sides of an issue and that's how I try to live my life is that, uh, you know, there's two sides to the coin and and there's two versions of the story. So um, I just, I guess, want people to know that I just uh, try to influence people, to help them think clearly and... The only way you're going to make good choices is that you've got to uh, inform yourself. And so 
what are the best sources of information to you know be the most informed person you can be and then I think you can make better decisions that way and and that's kind of the way I operate or try to keep an open mind always and uh, I guess I want to be known for I'd like to think that my glass is half full instead of half empty all the time I love it I am going to introduce one question to and it will be the last question um, of my podcast, but I wanted to ask you, and this is an interesting question, but for me, I always find it um, insightful into people. And so I'm going to ask you this question, and you are the first one to be asked. If reincarnation were real, and you could come back as any animal, what would you be and why? Wow. Well, first of all, I guess I have to assume that knowing all that I know before I'm reincarnated, I think I would want to choose to be a creature of longevity (laughs) rather than, uh, you know, being a mouse that only lasts a few months. (laughs) So I guess you'd probably want to be an elephant or a whale or something like that. That's cool. I, uh, that's a, it's a, it's a tough one to say (laughs) for sure, but, uh, I don't know. I would, I would, I guess, like to be an animal living in, uh, with freedom and longevity, uh, to be the, uh, The dominating critter in my world and live and let live those around me. I think you hit it correctly for you. I think that's an awesome choice. I think seeing you as a whale or an elephant, I think they're both intelligent, yeah. kind, and amazingly enough, incredibly large and you've already (laughs) you're so (laughs) damn tall so i find that interesting but the intelligence and truthfully the kindness that's within them already points to who you are and so thank you for answering that question i appreciate that thanks for asking i've never thought of it before actually i think about it too often Hey, thanks for stopping by and listening today. Be sure to check out Wolfer, A Memoir, and Wolfland. You can find that at bottleflypress.com. That's B-O-T-T-L-E-F-L-Y press, P-R-E-S-S dot com. Also, we want to thank our sponsors, NRS Rafts, Vortex Optics, and SKB Cases. And But also, we want to thank you guys, our listeners. We appreciate everything. Take care.